Locked in towers, losing their minds or leading lives of absolute misery. These aren't the tales of medieval peasants victimized by the high and mighty. These are the high and mighty. Sometimes those who wear the crown are regal, strong, and ideal. Sometimes they're just awful people. Here are the stories of six kings and queens who became legends for the wrong reasons. Blind history. We always end the season with something either grisly or something you didn't expect. And this is going to be an interesting little trip through some of the worst kings and queens in history. And some of them are not the worst because they were particularly evil people. Some of them are just the worst because they didn't do a good job of being king or queen. And uh, Anthony Meterer, my co-host, is ready. I'm ready to give you a little rundown of some of the worst people to ever wear crowns. Oh, I also love doing this and researching this. Although having said that, I think we've done quite a good job over the last five seasons of talking about some really, really bad individuals that easily would have made this list, but we've covered them already. Well, one of the people we haven't looked at yet, and it was actually a suggestion that was made by uh, somebody who listens to the show, they said, you've got to look at Queen Ranavalona of Madagascar. First of all, I didn't know who the hell this was. I'd never heard of her in my life. And if you know her real name, it's Rabo Duandriana Poinomerina. I, I kid you not, that's how long her real name was when she was born in 1778. They called her the female Caligula, and maybe to start, I'm going to read this passage from a book about her. The seven Christians stood together in the bright sunlight, bound with ropes, singing a hymn to their foreign savior as the spearmen advanced. Around them, a crowd of jostling men, women, and children, more than 60,000 strong, cheered enthusiastically as the spears were driven home, and one by one the men and women fell and writhed on the sandy ground, their hymn fading slowly into silence. Above the still writhing bodies on a ridge, a score of crosses stood in mute witness, carrying their ghastly burdens, some of whom still lived despite the day and a half they had hung upon the wood. That is what she did to Christians. So you can imagine what she did to people she really didn't like. Bloodthirsty tyrant. They called her Rana Valona the Cruel. Yes, she wasn't meant to be queen in the first place. Her father made a good call and heard about a plot against the then king of Madagascar. And he informed the king, and the king took action against his uncle, who was the plotter. And as a reward, the king said, well, I'll adopt your daughter, Rana Valona, and she can be queen after me. Yeah, so he pledged his son, the young prince Radama, who ended up also being quite a chop, to the little Rana Valona at the time. <laughs> Despite all of the nastiness, and she really did become very nasty with the, the colonial powers and with Christians in general, she tried to cut Madagascar off completely from the outside world. She waged war against anyone who came close, uh, including the French and the British. She, she managed to repel quite effectively. She had scorched earth policies, which rendered all the other tribes that didn't comply with her rules hungry and starving and desperate. She managed also to wipe out any enemies within the court that she didn't like the look of. And it was there was constant plotting going on. She was pretty much evil from day one. Look, she was massively jealous of her husband because he was running around after 20 years. They didn't produce any heirs. 
Yeah. So I can just give you insight into how happy their marriage was. But he died and the real craziness sort of came out, you know, keeping his body, touring with his body. Yeah. Some weird stuff started with that. Well, it's believed that she organized a bison hunt in Madagascar and that this bison hunt went on for months and months and that no bison were actually caught or killed. Buffalo, bison, whatever you want to call them, um, because I don't think bison actually exist in, in Madagascar, but that's what they called it. And she essentially had workers, some 10,000 of them died in the process, make a road all the way through the most difficult terrain in the island, just so she could follow in a, in a comfortable carriage, so she could watch this bison hunt. Her dead husband's rotting body with her. Very odd behavior at very least. They say that she could have possibly taken out one half of Madagascar's entire population through murder, starvation, or by just working them to death. She became later on in life quite creative in her punishments. And I think it was against the culture to actually spill blood. So that meant she had to get creative. And instead of using swords, she had a victim starved or strangled or stretched. Yeah, stretched. I mean, that's got to be right up there with the horrible things that people can do to each other. She had a very debauched and happy life for herself, though. She she lived in complete luxury, had a palace built. She had the finest silks brought in. She wore outrageous outfits. So she made sure that she was comfortable, even if her people were miserable as all, all hell. And she did build factories. She started a production line in Madagascar that was enviable. She really made the whole country get to work. And she made a fortune out of doing that, selling it to Europe, selling it to the East, wherever anyone would buy. And eventually the governments of Reunion and Mauritius actually made an offer of paying her off so that she would let the colonials trade with her again. So she not only gained the trade through all the factories that she'd built, but she also got paid a handsome sum just for allowing them the privilege of docking in her harbors. Definitely not consistent. And she really acted like a lunatic most of her life. Just before she died, she brought back a Christian tradition that as bizarre as it sounds, a suspect would eat a toxic nut and some chicken skin. Yes. And then depending on the number of chicken pieces they vomited up, they were guilty or innocent. So, <laughs> so a lovely woman. Well, when she died, 12,000 zebu were slaughtered. You ask what a zebu is. It's a kind of cattle that they have in Madagascar. Their meat was distributed to the populace in her honor. And an official mourning period that lasted nine months was carried out. Her body was put in a coffin made of silver in a tomb in the royal city of Ambohimanga. And during her funeral, a spark accidentally ignited a barrel of gunpowder, which was destined for use in the ceremony, which caused an explosion and a fire that killed a number of bystanders and destroyed three historic royal residences. Three. So right to the end, she was full of vim and vigor. All right, that's Queen Rana Valona. Now we'll look at a different queen. This story is actually pretty sad, and uh, a lot of people regard her as having been a bit of a martyr. That's certainly how she would have liked to have been seen. But Mary, Queen of Scots, how did you feel when you came to hear her whole story? So, uh, you know, there's always been quite a lot of media about her, and there's been shows that you can watch, great books. And the thing, though, is it very much depends on what you digest in terms of historical evidence, mm -hmm. it's very divisive. But myself personally, um, you know, when we read the story, I just feel it's quite a tragic story. Besides the time that she spent, you know, early life in France, the rest of her life was just shit. It it's, was miserable. Yeah, it was absolutely miserable. Way to say, if you were Scottish, you'd say, well, she had a shite life she did. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> now, Mary, Queen of Scots, took over as queen at the age of six days. And a child on the throne in the 1500s was never a good place to be. I mean, she had to be put in uh, Linlithgow Palace for her own safety. Um, she was married off very, very quickly to uh, the French prince, who was eventually to become king of France. But that didn't last very long because he died and she was left without him and without an heir and yes. was told that she had to go back to Scotland. So she got on a ship, went off to Scotland. And while she thought her troubles were behind her, she was then married off to her own half-cousin, Henry Stuart Lord Darnley, who was a bit of a nutcase as well. He was an abusive and an aggressive man. And he accused her of having an affair with her secretary and then stabbed her secretary to death in front of her. It was nice and stable in France when she was in King Henry II's court. She had an incredible time. But then he did die young, the boy prince, and she was just left stranded because she had nobody really to support her. And this is what happened with Mary Lott. She fell deeply in love with these people. Yeah. But they couldn't care less. All they were after was her titles and whatever she could give them. And Donald was a real piece of work. He was a terrible person. So Lord Donnelly, as I mentioned, stabbed her supposed lover. She was never actually accused properly of it. He was just a jealous nutcase. And so she had him taken out in return. Well, they say she might have had a hand in it, but she didn't seem to be a very aggressive, a nasty person, even at the worst of times. But then to make things worse, she was abducted and possibly raped by the Earl of Bothwell, who wanted to make her his wife. But this is where she was her own worst enemy. This Bothwell dude, she ended up marrying him. She managed to get out of his clutches eventually and... Then her life just got even more horrible because she tried to escape by going to England and right into the arms of her other cousin, Elizabeth I, who we've covered in another episode. And Elizabeth I would have none of her because she was an enemy and she was a threat to Elizabeth's kingdom. Of course, Elizabeth had no heirs and Mary was likely to be the most senior heir. So Elizabeth made an order that she was guilty of treason and had her sentenced to death. Before she went to England, I think she was locked up for a year in Scotland. And then eventually another 20 in England. Correct. Elizabeth I did see her as a threat, right? And when yes. she sentenced her, it was very hard for her because it was her cousin and she actually didn't have a personal problem with Mary. Well, it took Elizabeth, in fairness to her, 20 years to sign the letter to say, look, uh, you, we're going to kill you. And by then, uh, Mary was obese. She's suffering from a lot of illnesses because she'd been stuck in what they would call captivity, but she had five castles to go to. She, she could ride and hunt. She had 25 people looking after her. So she wasn't struggling, but obviously she was still a prisoner. Yeah, look, it wasn't pretty towards the end, and her execution has got to be the worst part of the story. So let me get to that because this is the grisly stuff people love. Mary, Queen of Scots, was executed in uh, Fotheringay Castle, and she became an idol to English Catholics, so Elizabeth had to make the decision. Mary saw herself as a bit of a martyr, and uh, as she faced the block, she dressed all in black, and underneath it she had this bright red dress, because red was the color of martyrs, right? So as she got up onto the scaffold, she took off her black dress, and there was this bright red dress underneath. She had her hair tied up. Um, they thought it was her hair, and I'll get to that in a second. And she knelt down in the executioner said, forgive me. And she said to him, I forgive you and all the world with all my heart, for I hope this death will make an end to all my troubles. So she gets down on the block 
And she reaches out, grabbing it. She goes, into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. All this in Latin. The executioner raises his axe, and to his horror, he misses, and he grazes her head. And all she says is, sweet Jesus, and the axe goes up again. This time, it goes about three quarters of the way through her neck, but not the whole way. Angry and exasperated, the executioner soars through the remaining part like you would if you were gutting a fish. Yeah, and there was a sinew left or something still. Horrible. And the body fell on its back bleeding. And as they did in those times, they lift up the head and they say, God save the queen, right? But they didn't realize she had a wig on. So as they lift the head, the head rolls out from the wig. The the guy's holding up just the wig and the head rolls down the stairs. Yeah, it was horrible. Just absolutely appalling. What an end to what it was a very difficult life. What a horrible story. But then Ivan is not tragic. He was just terrible. The name surely tells you everything you need to know. Where does this story start? So Ivan's dad was what they call Prince of Moscow. He died very young. I think when Ivan was about three years old. Then also his mom died at the age of eight. So he was basically left to nobles. And this obviously made a big difference in his life, this experience when he was young. He was basically treated like a homeless person. They didn't feed him and his brother. They didn't give them proper clothes. And it was all a big power struggle between two noble families to try to take advantage of this. And so his childhood was terrible. And I think also that from that point on, he really mistrusted the nobility, which would actually turn into blind hatred later on. And he took his anger out on animals when he was young. So he started pulling feathers out of live birds, throwing dogs and cats out of windows. So, you know, a little bit of Vlad the Impaler who used to spark rats. Yeah. So I think he also suffered from the same problems. Yeah. I mean, look, he only earned his nickname later on, but he was a problem child. <laughs> That's the one thing you could say from the start. Yeah. He's been called the Cersei Lannister of Russia. I mean, that's if you're a Game of Thrones fan, then you probably can draw the distinction quite quickly. Didn't really have a huge amount of love for his people once he became king. No, definitely not. But when he was 13, he showed his teeth and he arrested one of the most powerful nobles that was causing all the grief. And then he had hunting dogs tear him apart to make sure that this, nice. this guy was dead, yes. And then a couple of years later, he took over as the Tsar. Yeah, which obviously was a great time for Russians. They were thrilled, right? Yeah, 100%. Look, in the beginning, actually in the early years, he was quite good. He married Anastasia, who was the start of the Romanov line, so the last Russian royal family that were actually murdered. So there was a lot of things he did administratively that was very good in the beginning. But he allegedly also had an architect blinded after he had built the St. Basil's Cathedral, just so that he wouldn't be able to produce anything else in his life. Well, his wife that you mentioned, Anastasia, seems to have had a bit of a calming effect on him in the beginning. Some people say that she was the real power behind the throne. I don't know if that's true or not, but he lost two children with her in the beginning. And then they had a third child, which they called Ivan Ivanovich, quite a lot of ego involved in that name. Um, And they were very protective of this child. You know, even being around the kid could get you into trouble, let alone being the kid. But Ivan Ivanovich met the most brutal end of all, didn't he? Oh, yes, when his dad killed him. Nice. Yeah, that was very nice. So the story goes that Ivan Ivanovich's wife, Ivan's daughter-in-law, was heavily pregnant at the time. And Ivan was very particular in the way he dressed. And he felt she dressed very sluttily. So he started beating her up and she miscarried. 
So then his son got very upset and confronted his dad, and his dad killed him. He also lost his wife, didn't he? Anastasia died quite young. There's some rumors that she was poisoned. He was devastated. He went into a massive depression, and he was going to abdicate because also one of his great-great friends left Russia and joined the Lithuanians and then actually put together an army and beat the living daylights out of Russia in battle. So then he said he's had enough. So he left Moscow and went north. And I think this is where it really, really started to unravel because the nobles and clergy started to run Moscow, but they couldn't. They really struggled. There was war and civil war. So they asked him to come back at any terms. And then he said, okay, I'm coming back, but these are my terms. And the terms were to eliminate anybody or anything that resisted or looked like were against him. Now, to make all of this worse, there, were, there was war on the go. He was constantly at war in the Baltic. There was hunger. There was huge uh, starvation across Russia. I mean, it's not a, a great place to try and grow food in the first place. But um, the siege of Novograd was another big, ugly part of that story. And he, he just seems to have gone from one crisis to the next, poisoning wives, killing his own kids. It's just horrible. And also, he brought in the secret police, which was really a band of thugs, to carry out all the orders of anybody that was against him. They used to ride around on horses with dogs' heads latched onto their saddles. They threw people into rivers, apparently. And then what would happen is if you managed to survive once they'd thrown you into the ice-cold river, then they would come past in boats and they would have hooks and spears and push you back under. (laughs) This is terrible. They would boil, impale, roast anybody who was suspected or disloyal. He did do one nice thing. And if you ever go to Moscow, you can see St. Basil's Cathedral, which is beautiful. It's probably one of the most iconic buildings in the world. So he's not a complete monster. He did commission one or two beautiful things, right? Well, that architect was blinded. (laughs) So I'm not 100% sure. And, you know, he got architects also to commission specially constructed frying pans so that they could fry all the clergy, the women and children. Warmongery, brutalizing of his own population, attack on the clergy, nobility and the middle class, torturing and executing of anyone he felt was against him, raiding the nation's wealth. And it basically brought the economy to its knees. And let's just say at the end of this story, it's not as if it ended well either. His bones were dug up in 1963, and they figured out that at the time of his death, he suffered from debilitating bone diseases that would have left him in constant pain, barely able to move. They found mercury in his body, which came from the ointments he used to try and ease his agonizing joints. So he died in huge discomfort. Yeah, I think he also had a stroke or something when he was playing chess. What a horrible story. Ivan the Terrible. Um, so if you think that's terrible, we still got three more to tell you about. The first one of those is King John. Now, King John is probably known as the most the most stupid and useless and inept king of England. He did a number of stupid things. And we'll we'll start off with the story that John was never really meant to be king. I mean, he was about the fifth or sixth child of King Henry II. All his older brothers were better suited to the role. There was King Henry the heir who was meant to take over. He was killed in a ship that wrecked off the coast of England. There was Richard I who went on the Crusades, who was apparently handsome and brave and courageous and managed to defeat Saladin and all that kind of thing. He had a brother called Geoffrey who also died before him. John was right at the end of the queue. He was never meant to be king, but he was a, he was a real cunning, sly, surreptitious, 
dangerous little man. And I think because he was the last born, he probably thought quietly on his own all the way through his life of ways to unseat his brothers from power. Out of all the kids, his dad loved him the most. But like you rightly said, he was right at the back of the queue. And I think in the end, he was actually quite weak-willed. I mean, it's, it's a famous part of the story that's told in all the Robin Hood classics that John was the one who refused to pay a ransom to get his brother back as king of England when he was captured on his way back from the Crusades. And John saw it as an opportunity. So he said, nah, bugger him. Let him stay in the castle. We won't need to raise taxes here in England to pay for Richard's freedom. I'll rather take the taxes for myself. Yeah, 100% correct. He tried to take Richard I's throne while he was away. So he was definitely not heroic. And he interfered in a lot. He was a strange sort. Yeah, he lost the crown jewels once he did become king. And that'll (laughs) forever stain his reputation. He was crossing an area called the Wash, which is on the northern coast of East Anglia. And the waves came and he thought, well, like Canute many years before, I can command the waves, I'm a king. And uh, he ended up losing all the crown jewels, the crown, the scepter, the orb, all the things that were important that had been in the royal treasury from the time of William the Conqueror. He lost it all. He also impoverished the country, not only by paying huge sums over losing Normandy to the French, so they lost their their possessions in France. He was called Lackland because he was the first king of England who didn't have any land outside of England. Yeah, and he was cruel, sexually deviant. Sexually deviant. (laughs) (laughs) He was also forced into a militating climb down with nobility. So that's the famous Magna Carta and excommunicated from the church at some stage. So he he had a lot of challenges. Yeah, I'd say that that's putting it mildly. So the Magna Carta is famously a document which is supposedly the beginning of constitutional monarchy, but it it was effectively a way for the nobles to keep him in check because he just spent all the money, made stupid rules, didn't listen to anyone, and was ungovernable and ran the country into ruin. So he was not a popular king. And when he died, he was buried in a cathedral where no one else is really buried. He's the only king in there. And his tomb has been undisturbed, surprisingly, since he died. But he's really not regarded as being anything that we should be proud of if we're English. And although his son, Henry III, eventually took over after his death and was a very pious, noble man who extended Westminster Abbey and, you know, prayed at the shrine of King Edward the Confessor, King John is regarded as one of the wickedest and worst. And there are no other Johns, you'll notice. There was only King John I. That's true. John II, John III. England had decided they had quite enough of the name John. So what Winston Churchill mentioned was, and this is exactly verbatim, when the long tally is added, it will be seen that the British nation and the English-speaking world owe far more to the vices of John than to the labors of virtuous sovereigns, for it was through the union of many forces against him that the most famous milestones of our rights and freedom was in fact set up. They've still got a copy of the Magna Carta, which is preserved, and it is regarded as the beginning of any kind of constitution, any kind of human rights bill. And it gave people the right to challenge absolute authority. So in some ways, maybe Churchill's correct. John, blessing in disguise, but a hell of a horrible blessing in a very bad disguise. So we go from King John uh, ignominiously to Pope John, but this is Pope John the twelfth. He was Pope in the year 930. Um, (laughs) Now, that's a long time ago. This is the middle of the Dark Ages. So a lot of stuff is 
is a bit sketchy around the papacy at this time. Well, if you can call it the papacy the way he carried on. Yeah, look, so this guy is supposed to have been the worst pope in history. And there are a number of reasons they say that. He was depraved. He was obsessed with material things. He behaved exactly in the opposite way that you would expect a pope to behave. And he had arguments with everybody. He fell out with Otto, the Holy Roman Emperor. He was unable to control Rome. He, he was just a mess. Correct. I think what might have made you shiver, Gareth, is that his name was actually Octavian. Yes. Um, and that's one of your favorite Roman emperors and probably the greatest Roman emperor's name, actually. Yep. Well, we don't even know uh, really about his, his birth because he was the son of Alberic II, who was, you know, sort of a secular ruler of the Papal States. His mother was just a mistress of Alberic's, who was also his stepsister. So this is very incestuous from the beginning. Not great. He really loved drinking, fornicating, hunting, gambling. And he even once named a 10-year-old boy a bishop, basically showing his contempt for the papacy. Listen, he was made pope at what, 18 years old? Yeah, exactly. At that particular year, he waged war and lost everything. Well, right from the start, they could tell that this guy's character was not suited to the papacy because he was devoted to hunting, hawking, gambling, and wine. Correct. And then St. Peter's Cathedral was turned into a whorehouse. <laughs> now, when you say that, are you being figurative or literal? Literal. So he just brought women in and there would be orgies. He would obviously get bored of some of the ladies. So he, he liked to have different ones all the time. and it just Variety. Yeah. And it was very hard for him to go out to all different places. So he just brought them all to St. Peter's. And, mm. you know, if anybody's been there, you just cast your mind to that being a whorehouse. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, when it came to actually being Pope, he, he threatened to excommunicate anybody who gave him any trouble. He eventually took on Otto, that was the Holy Roman Emperor, and Otto eventually would have him replaced with someone else. But he sent a bishop to negotiate with him. And while that was being resolved, John was busy having like a multiple group sex experience with like five or six women. Yeah, correct. And then when he heard Otto's coming, <laughs> he ran away. <laughs> so he was, a, he was a great man. Such depth of character. He wasn't around for very long, right? He either died at the age of 27 or 34, depending on which sources you have. And his, <laughs> his life is not particularly noteworthy other than the scandals. But the guy was not very attached to the idea of being a priest or of being the Pope. He didn't even read the Bible very much. If you can just imagine 937 and people were extremely religious, anybody that did something like enjoying young men, it would be absolutely, it's almost like talking to the devil in those days. And he enjoyed young men who hung like mules. So that's what, that's basically what they said. <laughs> so it was, it was young men who were hung like mules and many, many women. So he was You're correct. Not, he was not discriminating. No, not at all. Apparently also they can't figure out how he died. Some people say he had a stroke while he was busy having sex. Uh, some other people say he was killed by a woman's husband who was jealous of him. We can't really figure out which one is true. But either way, you know, the Catholic Church kind of, <laughs> we think they have scandals these days and they really do. But this guy was probably the role model that shouldn't have happened. Of course, there, there's lots of other stories about all the the immoral things that he did, how he was angry and, and aggressive and ready to fight with just about anyone. He didn't like doing anything that revolved around ceremony or prayer or worship 
or anything else. He was probably on a par with the Roman emperor Elagabalus. Do you remember him? Yes. Also slept with his sisters and niece. Correct. A robber, a murderer, an incestuous tyrant, you know, that kind of thing. And he wasn't too concerned about, uh, you know, what God would say, because he would say that he could worry about that later, you know, in the confessions. And he also used to ask Jupiter or Venus to give him luck when he was gambling. And often toe Satan when he was drinking. So, it's, so that, that's exactly the opposite of what you'd want a priest to be. And, exactly. Yeah, 100%. And Ferdinand uh, Gregorovius, who was a, a writer at the time, said he saw it as almost a, a split personality. There was Octavian and then there was John Twelfth, And John Twelfth was supposed to be this pope who did the right thing. But Octavian, the real person, was at a very immature age prone to huge desire and to fulfilling his own whims. And if he'd been a prince, it wouldn't have been necessarily so horribly judged. But because he was a pope, it didn't go down well. And the Catholic Church have tried very hard to hide the story of John Twelfth ever since. Yeah, look, I think it being a prince, you can do anything. And that most princes did these type of things, but not as a pope. <laughs> so in other words, what we've learned in the last two stories is don't call your child John if you want them to take over a country or the papacy. Correct. <laughs> so from John to Juana, which is, and Juana is just basically Joanna, which is the female version of John in Spanish. And Juana of Castile is, this is a very sad story. I mean, this poor woman, she's called Joanna the Mad. She was also in, in some ways like Mary Queen of Scots. She was a pawn that was moved around between the powerful men in her life. The men who she loved, her own father, her own husband, her own son. She was treated so badly by all of them. It is a tragic story. And her parents were powerhouses, Isabel. Isabel and Ferdinand of Aragon. So they were actually the, the power couple who launched Christopher Columbus. She also, Isabella, she was the one who started the, the Inquisition. Which, yes, the Spanish Inquisition, correct. Which is a horrible, horrible thing. She was a religious nut, but it was a, a real worry to her mother right to the end of her life that, that, that Juana was going to end up being an atheist and that she wouldn't be a good Catholic Inquisition Christian like she was. She was a rebel. She wasn't very pious, and her mom hated that. So her mom actually tortured her a little bit. She stretched her. Yeah, well, uh, let's get into the detail of this because – she wasn't necessarily religious, but I don't think she was an atheist. And they called her a heretic because her mom was, you know, a religious lunatic. And what they did is they hung her up on ropes tied to her hands and they tied weights to her feet to stretch her. Yeah. Horrible. I think she was quite tall in the end after that. <laughs> but uh, she was very, very well educated um, in, in music, literature and philosophy, even in law for that matter. So she was definitely well prepped to be a wise consort. And she was married off to Philip of Flanders. Philip the Handsome. Yeah, so she wasn't too upset about that, but he ended up not being so Prince Charming. You know, he was all over the place. Yeah, well, they produced a couple of children. So basically she was pregnant the whole time, and then he just kept uh, jumping over the wall. Mm. And then she went into jealous rages and depressive tailspins. And I think this also started a reputation of insanity because she started indulging in love potions and witchcraft and yeah. snake oils to maybe get pique his interest. Listen, I think it's very unfair that we call her Juana the Mad because really most of that is probably stuff that he was gathering on her while they were married unhappily. But there was a great story about how she once burst into his room and she found him with another woman and she took a pair of scissors 
and she started cutting this woman's hair and she started slashing her face with the scissors. So yeah, she might have been mad. Yeah, I think she was just a bit agitated. <laughs> <laughs> but her brother died at 18 years old. So then she actually moved closer into the line of the throne. And then old Philip the Handsome thought, wow, this is it. So he started prancing around calling himself by a brother's title, which is the Prince of Aragon, mm -hmm. even before her brother's body was cold. So these guys are just uh, something else. So the, the relationship for them ends where he dies. He never became Holy Roman Emperor. Their son would eventually become Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. But when he died, she really started to behave strangely. She had an obsession with his dead body. She would only travel at night because she was scared that women would see him or see his casket and fall in love with him because he was so pretty. So she actually traveled at night. She kept kissing and caressing his dead body. It took about a week for them to get to Granada where they were going to bury him and her behavior from the moment where he died until the moment he was eventually put into the ground was very, very odd. Yes. And then just after that, her dad had her locked up and seized control of Castile. So just when one idiot died then the next one stood up so that's what's tragic so the husband treated her badly the dad locked her up in jail only visited her twice in 11 years which is pretty awful for a father yeah and then her son was cruder than anybody else yeah i mean her son charles v kept her locked up he thought nah not worth letting the old lady out let's keep her in there for another couple of years yeah and then she just became more and more eccentric completely hidden away from society and that's where the, the reputation of the mad really seems to come from. Because when people don't know what's going on, they make up stories. They made stories up about how she'd brought animals into her room, about how she couldn't stop talking all the time. She would mutter incoherently to herself. Yeah, talking in tongues. She was very lonely. And one of the cruelest things that her son did in imprisoning her is he also took away her youngest daughter and married her off. So yeah, she didn't even have a daughter to keep her company. And also her sister... Catherine was married to Henry VIII, and she also had a very tragic life. Of course, you've referred in a previous episode to the Habsburgs, but it's because of her that the Spanish and Austrian lines of Habsburgs were eventually joined. And that's also where a lot of the inbreeding came from. So she may have made a huge contribution, but there was possibly also inherited madness before she came along. And then obviously after her, there was plenty of madness to go around. Yeah, and I think if you look at Isabel, she was over the edge on the religious side. Yeah. And Ferdinand, you can see his personality. So, you know, there's a good chance that she inherited something there. Well, I'll tell you what her children inherited was more power than any other family in history, probably, because Eleanor married the King of Portugal and then the King of France. Charles became emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and married Isabella of Portugal. Then Isabella, the third daughter, married the king of Denmark. Ferdinand married Anne of Bohemia and Hungary and had children. Mary married Louis of Hungary and Bohemia. You can again see that there's a lot of intermarriage going on here. Yeah. And Catherine, the youngest, married another king of Portugal. There wasn't one of her children who wasn't a king, a queen, or an emperor. Incredible. Oh, but shame, very unfortunate woman, had a very sad life. She was eventually buried next to her beloved husband, Philip the Handsome. But that kind of was the end of a very sad and depraved existence. Exactly. Poor woman. We'll end it on her, and I hope we haven't depressed you.
Well, this is the last episode of season five of Blind History. Uh, I can't believe we've done five seasons of this already, Ant. Sure, it's been incredible. I've absolutely loved from Alexander the Great, I believe, was our first <laughs> episode one of season one to the royals behaving badly today. It's been a wild ride and it's been fantastic. Well, we're not finished and there are plans afoot to get some other things going soon. So stick around and thank you for being a supporter of Blind History. And uh, well done to all of the, the team at Cliff Central and at Taylor Blinds and Shutters for putting together some amazing, amazing content. Stuff that Anthony and I just love. We do it because we love it. But everybody else is putting in hard work as well. And it really is so much fun to do something that sounds and feels as good as this. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every single member of the royal family since Elizabeth I is a direct descendant of Mary, Queen of Scots. And in some ways that family tree kind of throttled around her because if she hadn't had kids, it would have gone to much more distant relatives. Mm. So in some ways she kept the, the blood flowing through the, the Royal family. And our current queen in England has quite a lot to thank Mary queen of Scots for 